Our scripture reading today comes from Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2, and Genesis 2, 7. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was all over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated, please. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, one of my favorite writers, he writes uh, for the New York Times, among, among other publications. His name is Ross Douthit. And uh, he recently shared about a conversation he had over dinner with some friends. So he was invited to speak at, uh, I think it was George Mason University, and he spoke, and uh, then he was, uh, you know, after the event, he was uh, at, a, at a dinner table with some of the other presenters and some of the faculty, and apparently he likes to do this a lot, but he asked for a show of hands around the table for who believed in ghosts. And here's what he said happened next. He says, not a single hand went up, predictably, if, not, if disappointingly, then the woman next to me leaned over and said, I don't believe in them, but I've seen one. <laughs> and that's it, right? It's like, man, I, I don't believe in ghosts. I'm from the 21st century. I'm too smart for that. I don't believe in them, but man, I have seen one. Douthat goes on to say, this is why he wrote this in the first place, that this is the single best summary he can think of when describing Modern Western society's engagement with the supernatural. Okay, that, that's our culture, modern Western society, our engagement with the supernatural. We need to be spiritual even when we deny vehemently that there is anything real to spirituality. I don't believe in God, right? But I occasionally pray to Him when I'm in trouble. <laughs> or uh, I don't believe life has any real purpose at all, but I still live as if it does. I don't believe in any sort of religion, but I'm still a spiritual person. Maybe you've heard that before. Uh, in fact, uh, there's a recent article, this is from 2018 in The Atlantic, about 64 million Americans, which is one in five, that's a lot, uh, reported or they identified as a spiritual but not religious. With all our education and our knowledge and our progress, we cannot seem to shake the spiritual we're haunted by the sense that there must be more to life than what we can see, hear, taste, touch, and smell. And I mean, think about it. If this is all we are, and, and, and someone said this on our teaching team this week, if we're just meat computers, which is gross but descriptive, if that's all we are, then why can't we live that way? Why don't we live as if that's true? And Douthit sums it up this way. I think he's absolutely right. We keep trying to disenchant the world, to disenchant our experience, to disenchant even ourselves. But the world keeps enchanting us back. Whether that's through an encounter with, with beauty and the arts and music or a walk in the woods or a good story or laughter with family and friends, even a deep loss and grief can put us in touch with that something more. 
Man, even our entertainment is enchanted, right? The most popular stories and movies of our day are Marvel, Harry Potter, Stranger Things. We just cannot shake the feeling that there's more to life. So we have two options. We can, as the woman in our story did with, with Ross Douthat, we can see but not believe. Or we can see and look for answers. And not surprisingly, okay, we find the answer, I think, the most important answer, right here at the beginning of this ancient book that we call the Bible, that we call Scripture, right in Genesis chapter 1. In an essential character in that part of the Bible that we tend to overlook, that we tend to forget. Even though he's on the first page of the Bible and he's on the last page of the Bible, even though he's in the Old Testament and the New Testament, even though, as we're going to see, he is central in the work of creation, he is central in the work and ministry and life of Jesus, and he is indispensable even in our lives and calling as the church of Jesus. We call him Holy Spirit. Maybe you've heard that before. Or if you grew up with an older translation, Holy Ghost. That's what we call him. He's the third member of the Trinity, which is one of the more mind-blowing things that Christians believe, that our God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about that in a second. And we're made in the image of this God. This is why we cannot shake the spiritual. It's because we are spiritual. We are more than what you see. And our world is more than what you see. So here's what I want us to pay attention to today as we walk through these scriptures, is that our world is bursting with spirit, bursting with the presence of the spirit. From the first page of the Bible to the last, it teaches us that our world is bursting with spirit. It's haunted with meaning and transcendence and wonder, enchanted with that by which we, we, that we cannot see, and that we're made like him. So if we want to know ourselves, who we are, we have to know what He is like. So today, we're going to begin a new series on the Holy Spirit. We're calling it the story of the Spirit. Because this is a member, the third member of the Trinity that maybe a lot of us haven't thought a lot about, we haven't heard a lot about. We want to take time over the next six weeks to walk through this, starting in Genesis chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, whether that's in paper or on your phone, uh, turn to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, it should not be hard. It's literally the first page of the Bible. So Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Okay, let me read. This is how it begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The very first statement of the Bible. Now, what's funny is that statement, just right off the bat, is so controversial today. Right? So many assumptions that are baked in. Like, is there a God? Is He real? And it's funny how controversial that statement is today and how uh, intuitive in one form or another it was for the ancient world into which it was written, right? Our ancestors, for the most part, looked around and it was incredibly intuitive for them to say somebody or something made everything around us. That was just the water they swam in. And this is a bit of an aside, but I want to I talk about this. It may be tempting for us uh, as modern people to look at that kind of assumption, like the assumption of the divine or the supernatural, and think, well, that's kind of primitive. That's kind of uneducated. That's not how we're taught anymore. 
Uh, but remember that just because they believe, that doesn't, ancient people are not inherently primitive any more than modern people are inherently sophisticated, right? You've met modern people. Are we the smartest bunch in the world? Well, no, right? And actually, most of the world, even today, would not throw a fit reading Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The controversy would come, as it did for the ancient reader, not around, is there a God or gods, but who or what is God? And what would have been so striking, and again, we miss this as modern readers, what would have been so striking for the original readers of this text would have been uh, who God is and how he creates. So, for example, they would read this and say, well, this isn't Ra, sun god of the Egyptians, right? Remember this, uh, the the first uh, Israelites to read this text would have been recently freed slaves from Egypt. So, that's what their masters believed as they leave Egypt behind, nor is this a story about Baal, the Canaanite deity of note in the promised land that is prominent among those people. So where they're going, where they're headed, they would see this is not a story of many gods, not many goddesses, but one God, Elohim. That's the Hebrew, God, Elohim. And the Spirit of God, Ruach Elohim. Ruach here means spirit or wind or breath of God, hovering over the face of the waters. That's verse 2. And again, this is so mysterious to us. And it would have been the same for the first readers of the Bible. But if we were to read the Bible today, I won't make you do this, but if we were to read the Bible today from cover to cover with an eye for this word ruach in Hebrew or its equivalent in Greek in the New Testament, pneuma, we would see something important. And it's this, God himself is bursting with spirit. And here's what I mean by that. This spirit of God, if we were to read the whole canon of scripture, we would see this spirit of God is God. Is prayed to as God, is worshiped as God, but is not the only person in God. I know that's really confusing. Like, truly, it is. It's the, the Trinity is maybe one of the, the least intuitive teachings of Christianity. But the early Christians who studied the Scriptures, they put together things like the Apostles' Creed, which we just read together a few minutes ago. As they read the New Testament and learned from Jesus himself and the Apostles, they could only describe the God they saw in Scripture and their own experience this way. One essence, one being, God, in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not one God in three roles, not three personas, not sometimes God's the Father, and then other times God's the Son, and then other times God is the Spirit. No, 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 no. One God, three persons forever. This is the only way, for example, to understand how Jesus taught us to pray, which was to pray to the Father in the name of the Son through the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Now, if that's confusing to you, it should be. It is confusing. Uh, It's always been confusing. But I, I think that actually should give us confidence I can't say it better than C.S. Lewis did many years ago. He was an atheist turned Christian. He put it this way. 
If Christianity was something we were making up, of course we could make it easier, but it is not. We cannot compete in simplicity with people who are inventing religions. How could we? We're dealing with fact. Of course, anyone can be simple if he has no facts to bother about. So yeah, this is complicated, but I think that should give us some comfort that it isn't just made up, because reality, as we all know, is always more complex than fiction. Anyway, one God, three persons, and one of those persons we're introduced to here in Genesis 1 is the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God. And so right away, we see that God himself is enchanted. He's mysterious. He's impossible to fully comprehend. And he's bursting with spirit. Now, what does the spirit do? And we see that that's kind of our next question. And he orders creation. This is what we see him doing here in Genesis 1, which is why creation is bursting with spirit. Creation is bursting with spirit. So I want you to look back at Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God makes all that there is, heaven and earth, top to bottom, A to Z. God made it all. But then in verse 2, now the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. In other words, creation, here's the emphasis uh, of, the, of, of Moses as he's writing this down. Creation was not yet fit for human flourishing, for human life. It's chaotic. It's watery, right? And in the ancient mindset, right, water means death. You can't live in water. It's not habitable for humans. It's disordered and chaotic. One author puts wild and waste is kind of what we're introduced to in verse 2. And the Spirit of God is hovering. This is like a bird-like image. It's hovering over. He's hovering over the face of the waters, like a mother bird over her nest. She's preparing something for her chicks. That's the idea. And then God says, let there be light. And you get the first day of the famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, seven days of creation that are recorded here in Genesis chapter 1. And here things get a little tricky because there's a lot of argument uh, even among believers, about what these days mean, uh, and, and that's, that's fine. It is a, it's a mysterious thing. But it's important that we understand what these early verses are for, because they aren't necessarily answering our questions. They're answering ancient and different questions. And I want to take a minute and just talk about this with you, because it, it's so important for how we read the whole Bible this is a great case study in how we read our Bibles, which again, if you are looking for a class to take this fall, I would, I would recommend uh, our How to Read the Bible class. You're going to learn more things like this because it's not enough to approach the Bible with our questions. I mean, that's important. But even before we do that, as best we are able, we need to understand the questions the original audience would have been asking. The Bible, if you remember, was written for us, but was not written to us. So when Moses, this tradition tells us, when Moses sits down to write Genesis 1 and 2, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he isn't praying to God, now God, help me understand what questions will the Western American Christians be asking about creation in a couple thousand years. Let me make sure I, uh, I address those too. 
Think about it. We want to know things like how did God make everything and when did he make it and how long did it take? And those are really good questions. But they are not the questions that this text is necessarily answering here. The ancient Hebrew people, remember these folks who are freed from slavery in Egypt and they're making their way to the promised land, they're asking different questions. Like, who is God? And why did he make the world? And what's the order and the meaning to it all? What's the purpose of it? Where's it going? And how did God create, take a chaotic and dangerous and uninhabitable world and make it a beautiful and productive, a world full of blessing, ready for you and me kind of place? Now, those are really different questions than probably we would ask. But we have to strive to read the Bible first on its own terms, okay? So let's try and do that. And one of the best analogies I've, I've ever uh, heard around how ancient readers would have read this text and how modern readers do was given by a scholar, and here's what he says. He says, it's the difference between asking about someone's house, that's the modern reader, or someone's home, that's the ancient reader. So just play this little experiment with me. If you were to sit down with me, and say, Andrew, tell me about your house. I would probably start to tell you when it was built, what materials were used, how the electricity was wired, what updates have been made, right? All that kind of stuff, material stuff. More on the physical side. And that's the question we tend to bring to Genesis chapter 1. Tell me about the house, God. Tell me about the house. We think we have a very materialistic bias in our culture. This is how we approach the world. But Moses is, is talking about the home. Not necessarily the house. He's talking about the home. So if you were to sit down with me and say, Andrew, tell me about your home, I'd tell you whose room is whose and why. I might give you some memories. For example, bringing home my children and how we prepared their rooms just for them. Why we put certain furniture in certain places. Our vision for how the home would actually work, what it's for, what it would do, how it would welcome people. Now, both of those descriptions are true. But they are answering very different questions. This is how we have to remember as we approach texts like this. If you want to learn more about this, I have two book recommendations for you. One is John Salehammer's Genesis Unbound. Uh, and another is John Walton's The Lost World of Genesis 1. Now, again, there's lots of different opinions on this, and you may not agree with everything they say, but it's really, really helpful uh, to understand the culture uh, into which some of these uh, conversations were happening. But the overall point here is that when the ancient reader looked at this and wondered at the enchantment of the world and how ordered and amazing that it was, the Bible told them that who did that was the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God. He ordered the world in the most amazing and fruitful way. He made, in other words, the Spirit made the house into a home. Which is why, you guys, and I want to I emphasize this, this, is why science is such a Christian thing. There's a rumor floating around out there that, that Christianity and science don't, don't get along, don't like each other. That is not true. Some of the earliest scientists were Christians convinced that because the natural order was created by a mind, God, that it could be studied and we could learn things about Him and us by studying. Essentially, uh, seeing their work 
as discerning the order and design of the Spirit that we see in Genesis 1. And I love how Francis Collins uh, puts this. He's a leading uh, geneticist, and he's the current director of the National Institute for Health, and he, he put it in his book, uh, The Language of God, he put it this way. He was a, an atheist turned Christian. He said, the God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. Right? And that connection helped lead him to faith in Christ. He realized, my work is actually to discern the Spirit's work, which is bursting in all of creation. It's a noble calling. And if you really think hard about it, it explains many of our callings and vocations too as human beings. If we're, we're all called to a certain extent to create order from chaos, whether that's as an engineer or law enforcement or as a teacher or an organizational leader or as a medical professional, if you're in construction work or craftsmanship, right, you take raw materials, you make them useful, you make them meaningful. And if you're a parent, the Lord knows and sees that you're at least attempting to bring order out of chaos in your calling, right? All we're doing from a biblical point of view is joining in with the work of the Spirit, who was the first to have the job of bringing order out of chaos, and He invites us in. So creation is bursting with Spirit, and we are bursting with Spirit. Look at Genesis chapter 2. So flip over to chapter 2, verse 7. When God makes Adam, the first human, this is chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Now here's something maybe you don't know. And again, whether we grew up in church or around the Bible or not, this, this story, Genesis 1 and 2, is so influential in how our culture thinks, right? And the stories we tell ourselves that we, we forget the impact this would have had on an ancient reader who had never read this before. Maybe you don't know this. There were other attempts in the ancient world to describe the origins of the universe and what people are and what we're for. And we found many of them. The Egyptians had their story, and the Babylonians had their story. And basically, through and through, all the other accounts, right, especially in the ancient Near East, which is the kind of the broad cultural, uh, culture into which Genesis was written, all the other accounts, they show the gods and goddesses creating everything from violence, right? There's, there's war, there's, there's killing, and from that dead thing, everything else is made. And generally, they show human beings as, as at best an afterthought, and at worst, as slaves that were created to meet the needs and the whims of the gods, which exp explains ancient religious practice, right? Like, hey, bring food or sacrifice to the god because they want to eat and they don't want to do it themselves. So you bring it to them. That's your purpose in life. The biblical account is remarkably different. Imagine as a, as a reader of this in the, in the ancient world that you, to see for the first time, oh, we weren't created out of chaos and war? We weren't created to be slaves? No, in fact, the Bible says you're handcrafted. God is a, like a potter. He forms you from the dust. And then you're God-breathed. God breathes life into humanity. And we are absolutely supposed to connect the image of God breathing life into us and the Spirit of God 
the wind of God hovering over the chaos in Genesis chapter 1. The Spirit breathing life into all of humanity made in the image of God. How shocking that would have been to the first readers of this text. And yes, we're called to serve God. We'll, we'll get to that part in Genesis. But, in, but not as slaves, but as partners, as royal partners. Adam and Eve are emissaries from the Lord of the universe. They are king and queen over his creation. There's intimacy and love and dignity in the garden. Unlike any other creation story at the time and since. And listen, even today, this explains our experience, doesn't it? It's like on the one hand, yeah, we're dust. And the older you get, the more you realize that. We are frail and fragile humans. But we are more than just dust. We're not just a pile of atoms or cells or neurons firing. That, there's breath in you and me. We are, all of us, God-breathed, whether we believe in the Spirit or not. At our core, we are physical and spiritual. We are seen and unseen. We are material and immaterial. Every person you meet, the people that you love, the people maybe you don't like that much, every person you encounter has that breath of life in them and the image of the divine. And you know it. Our search for meaning and joy and love and purpose. We may not believe in the breath of God in every person, but we have seen it. We know. And we need it. We need it. Because without the Spirit, there is no hope. Without the Spirit, there's no hope. And I'll prove it to you. If you are here, and you are skeptical of this enchanted world thing that I'm describing to you here, or if there are people in your life, friends or family or spouses, who are very skeptical to this whole supernatural part of the Christian faith, I get it. And actually, for a significant amount of my life, that was me too. I was very skeptical that there was anything beyond the physical world until one day I ran into a problem a hope problem. And it's summarized really well in this review of a memoir by a guy named Julian Barnes. Now, Julian Barnes was a witty, thoughtful, brilliant writer, but he was also a staunch atheist. And he wrote a book called Nothing to be Frightened of, which was really his reflection about the reality of death. And one reviewer, after reading the book, summarized this guy's worldview this way. Just listen to this. We are all dying the sun is dying. Homo sapiens is evolving towards some species that won't care about us whatsoever. And our art and our literature and our scholarship will fall into utter oblivion. Every author will eventually become an unread author. And then humanity will die out and the beetles will rule the world. A man can fear his own death, but what is he anyway? Simply a mass of neurons. The brain is a lump of meat the soul is merely a story the brain tells itself. Individuality is an illusion. Scientists find no physical evidence of self. It is something we've talked ourselves into. We do not produce thoughts. Thoughts produce us. 
The eye of which we are so fond properly exists only in grammar. Stripped of the Christian narrative, we gaze out on a landscape that, while fascinating, offers nothing that one could call hope. Now, that's depressing, but it is consistent. It's consistent. And there's a reason that I don't care what you walked in here believing. There's a reason when you heard those words, something, I would bet, something deep within you rebelled against every word. You know that is not true. That is not true. It's because we're bursting with spirit. And it was that dissonance, that voice in me that said no. That first led me on a journey to faith in Jesus. That was the first time when I encountered that dissonance, when I thought, man, I don't think I believe in God, but I really want to, because this can't be true. Creation is bursting with order and design, and your loved ones are bursting with soul and permanence. You know it. We know it so thoroughly and so intuitively that our experiences cannot be explained by the mere physical. We've seen more because our story of the universe is bursting with spirit. And it's the, the same spirit who breathed order out of chaos, who breathed life into dust. That same spirit, when we give our lives to Jesus, the Son, the Spirit gives new life to you and to me. He draws us closer back to the garden deeper into the presence of God every single day. That is the promise and the hope of our good news. And it can be yours too. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for this good news. Not only that we're saved from sin, but in your Son, The same spirit who breathed life into all of us, breathes new life into us, and changes everything we do. Father, may that promise, may that truth ignite in us a flame that changes everything. Holy Spirit, use us as you will to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We pray all of this in Jesus' name through the Holy Spirit. Thank you.